0: It's good to be with you today, and um, I'm just checking to make sure how much room I have before I pull a stunt this morning. Uh, As Pastor Mike was baptizing people here in the second service, I was doing that in the first service this morning, and uh, they say confession is good for the soul, so I'll confess. This morning when I pulled into the parking lot, and as I was getting out of my truck, I realized I forgot to bring a change of clothes. Yeah, Um, so as I was preaching in the first service, obviously I had dry clothes on, and somebody asked me afterwards, whose clothes were you wearing? They were my clothes, okay? I called my wife, Cindy, and said, would you please bring some clothes for me to change into? So uh, all is good. Uh, We are continuing our series today on Back to the Basics, uh, based on what the early church was learning from the disciples in Acts chapter 2.42. And so let me just remind you of what it says in that verse. And they devoted themselves... That they is the Christians, the new believers, the 3,000 people that had come to faith in Christ, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. So today we're going to focus on fellowship and the breaking of bread. So let's ask God if He would be our teacher this morning to make things clear to us as we delve into His Word. Father, thank you so much for your word that has been preserved for all of these thousands of years, that it is just as true today as it was the day when those early believers first heard these words from the apostles. Father, we have had distractions this morning, perhaps getting ready, getting here, whatever it may be. Father, would you remove those things so that we can focus on what you have to teach us, And that today, this wouldn't just be about learning something new, but applying it to putting it into practice in our own lives. And we ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. There are many words in the English language that have more than one meaning. Let me give you a few examples. When you hear the word bark, that could be the sound that a dog makes, right? It could also be a curt, loud order, like a drill sergeant barking out an order. It could also be the tough exterior of a tree. Or, and this one I'll admit is my personal favorite, it could be some chocolate that's made into thin layers, right, and sold at Romolo's. Another word that could have more than one meaning is the word blue, which could be a color color. But it could also be the way that you feel, feeling sad or lonely. Another word is stamp, which is that little sticky piece of paper that you put on a letter before you mail it. Remember when people used to do that, mail letters? Or it could mean what you do when you see a spider on the floor in your living room. Season could either mean a time of the year. Or it could be the spices you use in your cooking to make something taste better. Cobbler could be a person who fixes shoes or a wonderful fruity dessert that's similar to pie. Tell you a story. Before I was in full-time ministry, I worked as a budget manager for a department store chain in Southern California, and our corporate headquarters was on the fourth floor of our uh, our flagship store in a mall, and so each day during lunch, Uh, Myself and a friend of mine who was the accounting manager, we would walk around the mall. You know, we have mall walkers today, right? And we would walk around the mall just for exercise and to get to talk to each other. Well, one day I saw a sign in a storefront window, which caught my eye, that said, Coming soon, Cobbler Express. And I was so excited. And then I found out it was shoe repair. Well, you can probably come up with some words, uh, examples of words that have several meanings. The meaning of a word is often based on the context or the sentence that it's used in. And we know that from the examples that I just gave you. We've recently been looking at the basics of the Christian life, and today we're going to be looking at two of those. One is the breaking of bread, and the other is fellowship. Now, before I talk to you about fellowship, I'm going to take just a few minutes to talk about breaking of bread. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this because it's something that we talk about every month. The first Sunday of every month, we celebrate communion or the Lord's Supper. And this is what the, the passage is talking about. Literally, the breaking of bread is a technical expression used in this verse to explain the Jewish custom of pronouncing the blessing and the breaking and the distributing of bread at the beginning of a meal. Now, that could be any meal. It doesn't have to be in conjunction with the Lord's Supper. But in this particular verse, as we look at these other words, as we look at the context, we see that the other three words are all talking about the spiritual meaning. Why would then this one just be talking about eating food? So this is talking about the Lord's Supper as well. Now I'm going to take you to uh, a... A passage of Scripture that's going to talk more about fellowship, so if you want to go ahead and turn there, it's Romans chapter 12. You can look there in your Bible. There's a pew Bible in front of you as well if you want to look it up there. Uh, But as we're talking about uh, this second aspect that's found in Acts 2.42, we're going to be talking about fellowship for the rest of our time together. And there are, again, several different ways that this word could be taken. First, the word fellowship can be a verb that means uh, people are talking and perhaps eating together, being friendly and showing concern for one another. Often it has to do with a church activity. It's an action word, and it's often associated with food. Maybe it's an ice cream social, or it's the men's chili cook-off, or it's the ladies' tea, or it's the seniors' pizza and fellowship night. This is a type of fellowship where it's an event where people gather for the purpose of getting to know one another. Uh, The second way that this could be seen is a communion of people who have joint participation in an organization. And the word means the unity that should exist within the Christian church, which is the body of Christ, or as I like to say, the family of God. Now in Acts chapter 242, uh, just as a reminder to you that may already know this, or perhaps this is something new to you, uh, remember the Bible was not written in English. So we're looking at words that have been translated in the Old Testament. It's largely from Hebrew, and in the New Testament, largely from Greek. So the word for fellowship actually comes from a Greek word, and that Greek word is koinonia. Koinonia. Uh, If you were to literally translate that word, it would come out like this, the called out ones or the committed group of believers. So when we look at the word fellowship in this verse, in this context, we are talking about this second meaning. We're not talking about having a conversation while eating a Smith's hot dog, but rather the unifying faith in the way of living that binds us together. The passage that we're looking about today in Romans chapter 12 is the fellowship, and it's about, this is going to be kind of like getting a drink from a fire hose. There's a lot in this passage, and so we want to take some time and look at it uh, verse by verse. So if you're in Romans chapter 12, we're going to begin at verse 9 and then read through the end of the chapter. Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. I like the way that's worded. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, but fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them rejoice with those who rejoice weep with those who weep live in harmony with one another do not be haughty but associate with the lowly never be conceited repay no one evil for evil but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all if possible so far as it depends on you live peaceably with all Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. As I mentioned before, this passage is full of truth about what a church should be, what we should do or what we should not do and commands for the fellowship to follow. So let's look at that first one, the B word. As I read in this passage, I noticed several statements which started all with the word B. These are phrases and verses that show us who we should be on the inside, the core of who we are as people, as followers of Christ. Being part of the fellowship of believers means that our attitudes, our emotions, our thought life, and our motivations are changed by Jesus to be more like him. Now, this doesn't all happen at once. This doesn't happen the moment that you put your faith and trust in Christ, but this is a process. Uh, In Romans chapter 8, 29, I'm going to read this from a paraphrase called The Message. It says, God knew what he was doing from the very beginning. Now, there's the understatement of all time, right? God knew what he was doing from the very beginning. He decided from the outset to shape the lives of those who love him along the same lines as the life of his son. Very simply put, it says God knew what he was doing. He wanted the people that followed him to be the mirror image of his son, Jesus Christ. Now, as Pastor Chuck Swindoll has written, that process is not always step along step, getting further and further along. Many times that is more of three steps forward, two steps back. But it is a continual upward line in meeting our goal of being Christ-like. The first B statements are in verses 9 and 10, and they focus on love. The second B statement is in verse 12, and it encourages us to be joyful and patient and constant or faithful. The third B statement is in verse 17, and it says to be thoughtful in doing what is honorable. I was looking over all of those statements, choosing one to focus on, and I've decided to focus on love. We're to be sincere or genuine in our love and to be devoted to one another in love. As I thought about those two words related to love, sincerity and devotion, I realized that the Apostle Paul is saying that we need to be those things because there is the very distinct chance that we could be the opposite. We could be insincere. We could not be devoted. I don't want our church to be people who say that we love but actually don't. And as I thought about this, my heart settled on the genuineness of love and the need for the fellowship of believers, that's us, to have genuine love. Let me share with you this example. You may or may not know about the island of Molokai. It's uh, located in the state of Hawaii, and it has quite a history. If you go back to the, the late 1800s, you'll begin to understand why it's so significant. Back then, there was no cure for the highly contagious and deadly disease of leprosy. Leprosy is a disease that attacks the extremities of the body, such as the ears, your toes, your fingers, and your nose. It's a terrible and dreadful disease, which thankfully today is curable, but back then it was not. And in order to keep this disease from spreading, since it was so highly contagious, what the government would do would send people that had this disease to a specific area, to a colony, so that they wouldn't spread this disease. And in 1873, there was a young, brave Catholic priest named Father Damien who volunteered to spend the rest of his life serving in this secluded colony on the island of Molokai. When he arrived, he expected to find people with physical disease. What he found was more than that. He found that they were struggling socially and emotionally and spiritually as well as physically. In the leper colony, he saw extreme drunkenness, immorality, abuse, and an overall sense of hopelessness. He saw people that desperately needed to know the answer to the question so many people ask, where is God in all of this? They needed God's presence in their life. So in 1873, Father Damien began to live among these 700 lepers in this colony. He knew the dangers and he realized the inevitable result of so much personal contact with a highly contagious disease. And yet he built hospitals and clinics and churches and 600 coffins. And the whole time he was giving them the answer to the question, where is God? Whenever a church service was held, he would stand up in front of the lepers and he would warmly and lovingly address them as my dear brethren. But then one morning in 1885, at the age of 45, in a calm, clear voice, instead of my dear brethren, he began with, My fellow lepers, I am now one of you. It was out of the love that a humble priest became one of them. Out of love, he gave these lepers a gift that would change their life for all eternity. He shared with them the answer to that question where is God? And the best way that he could give them the answer is by willing to become one of them. Just like God did for us so many years ago, when God became a human, Jesus came to be born the Virgin, of the Virgin Mary and dwell among us. Genuineness is the quality of being free from pretense and deceit and hypocrisy. And we all know people who are genuine, and we all know people who are insincere. Sometimes the trouble is figuring out which is which. So how do we recognize true sincerity? And not just in other people, how do we recognize it in ourselves? First, people who act the same regardless of the group they are in or even if they're alone. It doesn't change the way that they live. Second, sincere people will do things because they want to and not because they're thinking of how it will reward them. Third, sincere people will not do or say things that they don't believe in. And how do we recognize insincerity in ourselves and in others? First, insincere people are takers and not givers. Second, insincere people often avoid making eye contact when they are communicating. And third, insincere people have an excuse for everything, nothing is ever their fault. Now, I don't know how many of you are watching the NBA playoffs right now, but if you are, you've probably noticed as well as I that when the whistle blows and a foul is called on a player, what is their response? (laughs) Not me. I could never commit that foul, right? Never. I've never seen anybody say, excuse me, you missed one on me. Could we stop the game right now? As I thought about sincere love, of course, the most obvious example is Jesus Christ. Jesus demonstrated sincere and genuine love in his life and in his ministry. It makes me think of the verse in Matthew 9.36 that says, When Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them, because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus healed and fed and talked with people because he genuinely loved them and wanted them to find God the Father. It also made me think of the example back in Genesis chapter 39 of Joseph who genuinely loved God. He loved him when he was in the public sight. He loved him and served him just as much when nobody else was around. You think of the example of when Uh, Potiphar's wife wanted to seduce him, and he could have thought nobody's going to see this, but he didn't. He acted in a genuine and sincere way that showed his love for God by running from that temptation. But I also thought about examples of insincerity in the Bible, and there's many. I think of Cain who offered a sacrifice to God that was less than his best, but he tried to convince God otherwise. I thought of the example of Samson, who tried to judge lead God's people, but he was controlled instead by lust. There's the example of Eli, who also tried to lead God's people, but failed to lead his own family. The example of King Saul, the king who tried to lead out of his own strength. King Solomon, another man who struggled with lust. And then in the New Testament, I see the example of Judas Iscariot, one of only 12 men that Jesus personally chose to follow him and, and to build his life into them over a three-year period. And yet, Judas decided that what was more important to him was political freedom from Rome than freedom from sin in his own life. There's the example of Simon the Magician and Ananias and Sapphira in the early church who were more interested in their image than they were in substance and even a little-known man named Diotrephes in Third John. The only thing that we've heard about him, that we read about him in the entire Bible, is, is that he loved to be first. I don't want to be like those examples of people who said one thing and did another. I don't want to be somebody who loves insincerely. Love is an important quality of of the fellowship of believers. That's us, the family of God. And that's seeking after God. My love needs to be genuine. Your love needs to be genuine. As a fellowship, we need to work towards and maintain genuine love and devotion to one another. That's the mark of God's people. And we're actually told that very specifically in John 13, 35, where it says, By this all people will know that you are my disciples. How? How? if you have love for one another. So this passage in Romans 12 is not just full of be statements that instruct us about our hearts and our motivations, but it's also full of do not statements that we should not ignore. And as I look at this, I found six different do not statements. The first is do not lack zeal in verse 11. And then in verse 16, do not be proud and do not be conceited. In verses 17 and 19, we have related statements that say, do not repay evil for evil and do not take revenge. And then in verse 21, do not be overcome with evil. So in this, the Apostle Paul is commanding the fellowship of believers things that they are not to do. And so as I looked at that list, I've I've decided I'm going to focus on the first one. Do not lack zeal. Now, that's not a word that we use in everyday life, right? And I'll be honest with you, when I came in this morning, nobody stopped me and said, Hi, Pastor Scott, how are you doing? And I said, I'm full of zeal. It didn't happen that way. So what is zeal? Zeal is passion. Zeal is commitment. Zeal is single-minded devotion. Zeal is having goals and running towards them. Zeal is enthusiastic diligence. Most of the passages in the Bible that reference zeal, though, are about God and about his character. We're told that God is the ultimate example of zealousness. He is zealous for his people. And aren't you glad to hear that? That God is zealous for you if you are one of his people? We're also told that God is zealous about accomplishing his will. That he's zealous against sin. That he is zealous about his holy name. That's, a matter of fact, one of the Ten Commandments, right? That we are not to use God's name in vain. And if you want the reason why, it's because God is zealous for his name. And we're also told that uh, over and over again, these things about God being zealous, but there are also examples of how we as Christ followers need to be zealous. I want to read to you one from the New Testament and one from the Old Testament. First from Proverbs chapter 23, verse 17, and I'm going to use the NIV, the New International Version, because it actually uses the word zealous. It says, do not let your heart envy sinners, but always be zealous for the fear of the Lord. In other words, don't worry about how you think somebody who is not a Christ follower seems to be getting good things in life. You need to instead be worried or to be zealous for the fear of the Lord. The New Testament verses in Galatians 4.18, again from the NIV, it says, It is fine to be zealous, provided that the purpose is good, and to be so always and not just when I am with you. So we need to be zealous all the time, not just when you think, oh, is Pastor Scott watching? Is Pastor Mike looking? All the time. I believe that if we're going to copy God and take on His characteristics, that we need to be zealous about God's people. In other words, we need to be zealous about the church, zealous about accomplishing His will in our own lives and in the lives of our corporate body. We need to be zealous against sin, zealous about His holy name and sharing Him, zealous about fearing the Lord and keeping Him number one. And zealous about doing good, this is what we should be doing. This is what we should be passionate about. These are the things that should characterize our lives as believers and as the church. I'll give you another basketball illustration. This is back in two thousand and nine. Blake Griffin was the number one pick in the NBA draft that year, and as you see how high he is in that picture, it kind of gives you an idea of the talent that this man has. He was drafted by the Clippers. He now plays for the Pistons. He's 6'10", and when he was in college and in the NBA, he just dominates. After he was drafted, he called the general manager of the Clippers on a Saturday morning, long before training camp, and he said, Can you open the gym for me? I want to start practicing. He's a millionaire at this point. He's assured of a spot on the team. As a matter of fact, he's probably assured a spot in the starting lineup. And he could have just sat back and waited for the team workouts to begin. Now Blake's dad said, He knows that nothing is going to be achieved through his talent alone. Now what is that? That's zeal. When we look around and see successful people, sometimes we're tempted to think, Oh, they're just lucky. Or that was just fate. But the truth is that most successful people work hard and are zealous after their goals. In the same way, Paul is challenging the fellowship of believers, the church, to work hard towards spiritual uh, goals, to be zealous about that. Because spiritual growth is never by accident. Something about Christians that non-Christians find attractive is our fervent faith for God, we know what we believe and we live it out that's zeal and zeal is attractive it's evangelistic zeal is not just talking about faith but living out faith in a way that is uncompromising and with full effort now this passage in Romans 12 that we've looked at we've seen that there are be statements that instruct us about our hearts and motivations we've now just looked at the do not statements that we should not ignore But there are also outright commands that we should listen to with open ears and soft hearts. So this last area that we're looking at are the commands. And and when I think of them, the reason why I think of them as commands is because they're action words. We are expected to do them. We are expected to follow them. In verse 13, we see, share with God's people who are in need and to practice hospitality. In verse 14, there's a command that Jesus also gave, Bless those who persecute you. Verse 15 says, Rejoice and mourn. Verse 16 says, Live in harmony. Now, out of all of those, I would like to focus on the command, Bless those who persecute you. And the reason I'm doing that is because I think it's probably the most difficult of these to do. The world we live in says an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth is the right way to live. We need to keep people from walking all over us, right? And we like things like good gets good and bad gets bad and, and what goes around comes around and, and everything comes around full circle. We, we tend to believe these sayings because we've heard them so often and, and we, kinda, we like the way they sound. We like that good gets blessed and and bad gets punished. But a fellowship of people works differently. God's kingdom is often backwards to what the world thinks and expects. We're told in Matthew chapter 20 that the last shall be first. In James 4, greatness is humbleness. In Psalm 51, brokenness is healing. And in Luke 17, forgiveness is to be prized. The command to bless those who persecute you is a command to us to be different from the world. When we're wronged, we're not supposed to get even. We're supposed to forgive. When people are frustrating to us, instead of being frustrated back at them, we're to extend grace to them. When someone is actively against us, we pray blessings for them. And when somebody has wronged us, instead of doing wrong back to them, we do good to them. That's the way that God's people work. That's the way a fellowship works. Our biggest objection to this tends to be that's not fair. Fairness is one of those things that that really is subjective because what you think is fair, somebody else doesn't think is fair. We don't think forgiveness in the face of grievous wrongs is fair. We don't think that praying for someone who hates us is fair. Now please hear me on this. It has nothing to do with fairness. We should be more concerned about holiness and righteousness and godliness than we are about fairness. We need to simply and faithfully follow God's commands and let God deal with the consequences or the unfairness that may result. Let me give you an example. Abraham Lincoln, before he was president, as he was practicing law, he was once approached by a man who wanted to sue another man for $2.50. Now I know that seems very trivial. Uh, Remember that $2.50 was worth more then than it is today, but it still wasn't an outrageous amount. And Lincoln tried to discourage this man from suing somebody over this amount but he wouldn't be persuaded. And so Lincoln agreed to take the case, and he said, my fee for suing this man is $10. He took the $10, took half of it, and gave it to the man who was being sued, who then gladly gave $2.50 to the man who was suing him. And you know what the crazy thing is? The guy that was suing for $2.50 was very pleased with the result of this. Again, fairness does not always make sense. We need to remember that God calls us to be different. One of the ways we're to be different is in how we treat people who wrong us, say hurtful things against us, or sin against us. As a fellowship and as individual Christians, we are to meet people with blessings and with grace. So as we've looked at Romans chapter 12... We've seen uh, this passage is full of statements of warnings and commands. Each verse is one after another given to us as how we're to live out our lives as we live in fellowship. Are you, am I, let's ask this of all of ourselves, how are you doing with sincere love? How are you doing with zeal? And how are you doing with blessing others even people who have been mean to you. This is what fellowship is all about. We started off this morning talking about words that had more than one meaning. And I would hope as we think about these verses in our lives that some important words have one meaning and not two. For example, church is either a place where anyone can come to find God and community, or it could be a place where you feel alone even though you're in the middle of a crowd. Let's hope and let's work towards it being that first one. A Christian is either a loving, zealous person or somebody who puts on a fake smile and tries to make people think they have it all together. Let's work towards being a fellowship of believers that are sincere in our zealousness. Fellowship is either a group of unified believers in Christ or a social club full of cliques and closed groups. Let's make sure that we are a fellowship that welcomes everyone. I would rather the words church and Christian and fellowship have solid godly meanings than anything else. I want FAC to be a family where people are loved and feel community. I want each of us, beginning with myself, to genuinely put others first while knowing that God loved me enough to send his son to take my penalty for my wrongdoing. So, Father, as we reflect on these words today, help us to evaluate where we stand in the midst of these. How are we doing with fellowship? Do we love people? Are we zealous for you? Do we repay evil with blessing? God, this is what a church is all about. And, and as we try to live out being a fellowship of believers, would you help us to reach our community? That Would they see our love for one another and be so attracted to it that they want to be a part of it? And even as we send the gospel around the world, would you do the same thing, Father? We want to see more Christ followers, more people worshiping God of heaven forever and ever. So as we give to you our offerings and our gifts, would you take them and multiply them many times over? We want to see many people come to know you, and we want to live the way that you've drawn us. In Jesus' name, amen.